Hi, everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome back to another episode of Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Lion Tree. Kindred Media is an advisory and production company focused on the intersection of media, tech, and business. For more insightful content, search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening. Today, we hear from a media legend, the senior executive and chairman of IAC and Expedia, Barry Diller. Listen now as Mr. Diller catches up with Lion Tree CEO Arya Borkov on all things media, the shifting political landscape, the heightened calls for regulation of tech platforms, and IAC's resiliency throughout an ongoing global pandemic. Hi, everyone. I'm Aryeh Borkov, and I'm honored to be joined today by the legendary Barry Diller, a dear friend, and also the chairman and a senior executive of IAC and Expedia. Barry, thank you for sitting down with me. I've, I've been looking forward to hosting you on our Kindred Cast podcast for some time and several years, and all it took was a pandemic to get you to have some time on your hands. So thanks for being here. <laughs> Happy to be with you. Allow me a minute just to properly introduce you because many of our listeners in the media industry know you, but we have a broad viewership and broad listenership that to fully comprehend the vastness of your career and your leadership and the different roles around media and technology, consumer brands, not to mention both yours and Dion's incredible philanthropic work. I just want to give a brief introduction not to embarrass you. Since 1992, beginning with QVC, you've served as chief executive for a number of predecessor companies which really ultimately led into the interactivity forum that now is the formation of IAC. But prior to QVC, you were chairman and chief executive of Fox and was responsible for the creation of Fox Broadcasting Company, in addition to Fox's motion picture operations. Before joining Fox, you served for 10 years as the chairman and chief executive of Paramount Pictures Corporation, now obviously part of Icon CBS. You became president of the conglomerate's newly formed Entertainment and Communications Group, which includes Simon & Schuster, Madison Square Garden, as well as others. And early in your career, you also ran primetime TV for ABC Entertainment. So really, the formation of all things that constitute media today, in my mind. You're an avid Broadway investor and supporter for shows such as To Kill a Mockingbird, The Iceman Cometh, Carousel, and Betrayal, to name a few. Your foundations, along with Diana, projects uh, for Roundabout Theater Company, Signature Theater, The Public Theater, and the Motion Picture and Television Fund. And you're creating something called Little Island, which is a greenhouse park and performance center in the Hudson River, which, according to my last visit in New York, looks nearly completed. Barry, you also serve on the boards of the Coca-Cola Company and now MGM Resorts International. You're a member of the Business Council. You serve on the Dean's Council of the New York University, Tisch School of the Arts, the Board of Counselors. Uh, not, uh, not Barry. Who cares? Enough. Okay, enough. Okay, fine. Suffice to say, you have some great stories. Now, so how are you doing, and what is your biggest takeaway from being in a pandemic? What are you going to take with you and what do you want to leave behind? Oh God, what will I take with me? Well, I want to leave it behind. And uh, soon I think we all will be able to leave it behind. It has snatched life away from us for the last almost year. And that is to me the most unfortunate thing. Certainly the older you are, it's taken a year out of your life, basically, that shouldn't happen to you. If you're younger, school, 
holidays from school, experiences, etc. Everything basically has been in one form or another suspended animation. And altogether, in addition to the lives lost, in addition to people being sick, it is an entirely weird situation. Those of us who live in cities, New York, Los Angeles, big cities for sure, the alteration of life as we knew it, it's almost complete. I think that's very sad. There are things that have come out of it that are good for sure, like anything, can snatch good from bad stuff. Particularly, I think, for people being able to spend more time with their families, <laughs> not willingly a lot of the times, but beneficially. I don't know. You know, some people say, well, life will, quote, never be the same. I don't believe that at all. I think, yes, technology, basically what we're doing, this Zoom life, uh, has altered some things. But I really believe that we're going to be going back to, quote, normal as quickly as normal is allowed to come back, which I think is sometime, probably sometime around the summer, fall, I think we'll be back to relative normal life. I very much believe, by the way, that work from home does not work. And I'm not an advocate of it. I think that, yes, there probably be some more flexibility in work environments. But in the main, I'm very much a believer that you've really got to be in a collegial, sometimes collegial, but in a stimulating environment next to your colleagues, in and around them, passing them in hallways, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that that will very much return to what it has been. So do you think that summer, fall, without holding you to like a specific date, back to normal also means a return to life in the city as being a hub? Will cities come back? Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. I mean, I, I say it with absoluteness, but I really do believe it's absolutely. I think that, yes, the habits of people, maybe if this went on for a generation, literally, you'd have people rewired to a degree. This is an aberration, as horrible as it's been for us in the moment. It's but a year. Our wiring is not going to change. So yes, cities, offices, etc. Will there be some more flexibility? I suppose so. I think actually there will be less than a lot of people predict. Yeah. And also there's a difference between working from home and working from anywhere. I think people like you and I have been working from anywhere for a long time, right? Or working from everywhere because we have certain hubs like the offices, but you're comfortable working from anywhere for business travel as on the go, et cetera. And that will sustain. Completely. So then if we sat here a year ago and, you know, we always talk about predictable business patterns, life is unpredictable. That's what we've learned over and over again, not just because of a pandemic, but it happens all the time. And people tend to look right in front of you and make these kind of normal predictive decisions. But a year ago, if we were sitting here today, no one would have predicted what happened in 2020. But now we're in 2021 at the very beginning of the year. And, you know, we can sort of make judgment calls of what could happen. But there's certainly going to be a lot of things that we're not going to expect. So these black swan events. As you look to 2021, what are the things that you think could surprise us that people are not expecting today? Well, I think they'll surprise me too. So I haven't a clue what they are. One thing I do think, and I 
said this yesterday. Wait, yesterday, my God, the time flies. Yesterday on the 20th, we all thought, oh my God, let 20 be over on so many levels. What a possible year. But it did not end with New Year's Eve 21. It ended yesterday. And I think of January 20th of 21 as the beginning of the year. And I do that because I so much of this is the change in administrations. One of the things that I'm hopeful for, of course, is that we will have a certainly a calmer time of it vis-a-vis all of the noise of this last year, basically because of this administration. It's four years, but it seemed like 100 years. But the last year was particularly tumultuous. So it'll be a calmer foundational level to live, to well, have noise yeah, in the media, to do business. Yeah. I talk about not being prescient. I think in whatever time period you had, summer, fall, whatever, I would have thought that Joe Biden was going to be the president. But I also would have thought that the market, expecting that, would drop precipitously. And the amazing thing is, is exactly the opposite has happened. And time will tell whether that sustains itself. Though I think, and again, I'm not overly prescient, and certainly not in these areas, but I do think probably we'll have to have, we have to have at some point a kind of reevaluation of, quote, markets. Markets, yes, but how about the economy? If the markets are frothy or flush, the economy certainly seems poised for a rebound still. Yeah, look, that's the amazing thing. You would have thought with the second quarter of last year and the third quarter of last year, I mean, I'm in the travel business partly, and to have 95% of your business drop in a day and then fall to about minus 60% for most of the year, and this affecting small businesses, particularly in anything other than internet businesses, really devastated airlines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. With all that, market booming. I think it's certainly odd. All of the round expectations of all of this or all the rationale for this is all obvious to everyone. We don't need to bother with it. But there is going to be, I absolutely believe it's going to be true for travel, that once it's safe, once the international protocols are all leveled, there's going to be a huge burst of people wanting to travel distances rather than what they've been doing, which is travel where they can drive to. So I think, yeah, you're going to see a lot of exuberance. I'm not so sure that the analogies of saying it's going to be like the 20s after Prohibition 100 years ago, but when people feel safe again, a lot of this obviously is actual feeling of safety. Yeah, I had thought in the spring of last year that you have to recalibrate your safety mechanisms. You have to let them loosen somewhat. You, you can't be absolutely safe, but you, God knows, want to continue your life. In truth, fears overrode almost everything. Yeah, and so as so, people feel safe, and also people have saved up a lot of money during this last period of a year plus, not just companies, but individuals, because there hasn't been a lot of travel, right? So there's a lot of pent-up desire, fervor, capital. Yeah, for sure. So that should buoy the economy and the rebound, even if markets are potentially toppy 
And you could have an economic rebound and strength without necessarily the markets catching up or staying where they are necessarily. Any yes, other right. macro fears that bother you, like uh, China or U.S. or currencies or dynamics at play or Main Street not participating? Well, we can't have a recovery if, quote, Main Street small businesses haven't got the funds to get actually back into, quote, so to speak, business. And that's all the forms of it that are all obvious. All small business formation, all high street, all, when you say, so to speak, street life. Yeah. I think the stimulus plans will probably provide for that. But no, once that happens, I think it's all fine. And I can't do macro stuff. I'm not very good at that. My huge worry was that Trump would be reelected. I thought once, okay, it's an aberration. But to re-up Trump, I thought had such dire consequences that frankly, once that was over, and frankly, yesterday it was over, and we saw it gloriously be over, then that was my overwhelming worry. And at the same time, humbled, because 75 million people voted for him, though I truly believe, so for whatever that is worth, that if that vote were taken today, after his actions post-election, I think a good portion of that 75 million would disappear. Not all of it, but a big, big portion would disappear because what he finally did, that it took this after four years, but what he finally did, so consistent with who he is, I think many, many people saw it and said, no, wrong. It's what started the big lie, and that was started with a little lie. On the first day he came into office, he said red was blue, green was yellow, meaning he said about his inauguration and how many people were there. You had a picture of how many people were there as against the previous inauguration. It was clear to the eye, not to him. He nevertheless shouted it from the treetops. That was the little lie. Four years later came the big lie. And that, I do believe, the consequences of that are that he is disgraced now and forever. Right. So even if Trumpism and Trump is a thing of the past, and let's say the 75 million votes are much less today, as we were saying, there is, and Biden's message is one of unity, there is a segment of the populace that needs to be addressed that, let's say, has despair, where you have to create jobs, you have to create new industries, you have to create a sense of participation in the recovery and the economy. And where does that come from? That has to be part of the New Deal, don't you think? Of course. Look, I think progressives have been rightly accused and the elite of being patronizing to everyone, let's call it, else. And I think that's been a long time in the making. And that is why I was really humbled by the election, because I think it spoke very clearly to that. There's a lot that needs to be done. I mean, I'm not going to enumerate it. It's kind of obvious what needs to be done. It will take time. Hopefully, though, after something like this, there is a healing period. And by the way, also, we've been taught a lesson. If we don't pay attention to that lesson, and that's going to take time to have that lesson permeate into people's consciousness. But 
we have truly been taught a lesson. And it really is about, let's call it simply factual truthfulness, the ability to tell the lie, the big lie, and have these huge communication fire hoses, spread it around and spread it around and let it percolate. Never has it been more important to have at least demand that there be factual bases that are accepted. In other words, my thing is, red is red. You can argue. You can't say it isn't red. You can say, I don't like red. I don't like the people who like red. Not working you can do all me. of that. But you can't say it isn't red. That's why I want advocate change in 230 Communications Act. I do believe that these big engines are publishers and have to take responsibility. They have to have guidelines. They have to have regulations. They have to abide by them. They can't simply say, we're throwing this person off and putting that person on arbitrarily. I believe that if they take away the ex-president's Twitter account, they have to do it in the context of absolute policy. It can't be by just editorial decision-making. Right. It can't be situational. It has to be based on a certain policy, of just course. like media has been governed by the whole time, right, with the FCC. The tech platforms has to well, have we, a we used policy. To have, we used to have a thing called the Fairness Doctrine. It was at a time, and it's very analogous in a way today, 30 years ago. We had three television networks. They were the equivalent of Facebook, Twitter, Google, etc. In that three networks was 90% of mass communications. There was a doctrine called the Fairness Doctrine, which said simply that, yes, we have to have controversial opinion, but it has to be balanced. If you're going to say this, you have to have somebody dealing with opinion, not fact. You have to have the other side as well. It had to be balanced. What that was, was a restraining order. It mandated restraint. It mandated responsibility because the broadcasters were subject to federal license. And they were petrified that somebody was going to take their license away. That restrained them to act in what was considered, quote, the public interest. It wasn't that, quote, government was making these decisions, but government provided the framework for regulation that was then undertaken by the parties acting in the broad public interest. We trust the fairness doctrine. We have to institute some new kind of fairness doctrine that takes care of this and I believe that will happen in the next year. It's hard to do, but it has to happen. So, Barry, but do you draw a distinction between a platform like a Netflix or a CBS or a Fox that actually is responsible for the curation of content and oversees the curation of content versus ones like a YouTube or a Facebook or a Twitter who would argue, we don't curate the content. We just have the platform where others can have their own message and speech, and we're just policing it. Yeah, here's the problem. Up until now, the fact that these tech platforms did not have actually any responsibilities because they were protected under the shield of, quote, not being publishers, that is a fallacy. 
They are, in fact, publishers. As difficult as it is to police, as difficult as it is to deal with, we have just again been taught a lesson. It has to be dealt with. People can have voice. What they cannot do is put out things that are false. Full stop. How do you determine truth and false? It's not in the subjectivity of it. It's in the objectivity of it. It is doable. We all know it. Again, red is red. That's not true for this and that political belief, but it certainly is true on a factual basis. And that's what we have to get to. And does Section 230 go far enough, or is there another form of regulation you're thinking about? No, Section 230 is antiquated. Section 230 no longer covers. You need new law. You need new, I think it's legislative. I think it's rather than agency. Depends, again, you could do it out of the FCC, but there are all sorts of issues where lawsuits, because lots of things the FCC has decided to do are determined unconstitutional, which means you have to do it through the legislative route. And do you feel like it should go even further than that? Because this could take a while to implement that there should also be breakups of the tech companies. And will that happen? I don't think so. Although, you know, you can't really tell. I don't generally believe breakups work. They get reconstituted. They broke up AT&T and it reconstituted itself years later in AT&T. I'm not so sure. Yeah, of course. I think what they need is sensible regulation. Look, Google's a monopoly, absolute monopoly. Monopolies have to be regulated. And one hopes and believes the regulation will be sensible and wise, or it will get course corrected. But Google has to have regulation. It's not a level playing field for anybody. So that is mandatory. It's not that hard to do, by the way. It really isn't. By the way, I also don't understand how you could break up Google. It only has one business, which is search. And and it's really difficult to break. All right. But YouTube by its nature, actually, is much more a service. First of all, it is not a monopoly. Search is a monopoly. Google search is the monopoly. Whether they own YouTube or not is not the issue. But all of its business is advertising, and all of that advertising business actually has to have regulation. You don't need to bother regulating YouTube, but you sure need to bother regulating Google. Facebook is the same thing, where sensible regulation, not breakup, is the prescription. Look, we've let these things grow unfettered. That's good. So too did Ma Bell. So too did Standard Oil. They got to a point where, like all monopolies, they acted abusively. And that has begun to happen with these tech platforms in their size. It's natural. They just need regulation. I don't know why that isn't just simply addressed. Okay. Now, I want to go back to the markets, value, a pandemic, and opportunities that arose from the pandemic. We're not going to talk about the actual virus and so on, but the market moved very quickly during the last year where there were some opportunities for maybe a few weeks here and there, but also people made these vast predictions of the deaths of certain industries, like the theatrical business, the cruise line businesses, and these will never come back. And you and I were talking earlier about how cities will come back. So you saw certain things during the pandemic and you said certain industries are going to come back and there's an opportunity here to make a bet. You did that with MGM. Take me through that thought process because there are a lot of industries people said, you know, these are structurally flawed. They're never coming back. Do you believe those things or do you think that these are just kind of opportunities when they get hit like this? I think anybody reacting to anything during a pandemic 
where fear is the operative word, where social distancing and all that that entailed stopped life as we know it, certainly stopped travel, certainly stopped this, that, and the other thing, okay? Mm-hmm. Once there's no fear, it's gone. It'll come back. Now, what happened to us with MGM is we have been always in the position that we've had plenty of resources. When the pandemic happened and it affected all of these businesses, the first thing we did, let's take it in two parts. At Expedia, affected as much as anything else, we went out and within a couple of weeks, we raised actually eight and a half billion dollars. Because what we said is, we need to project beyond anybody's rational length of time for this, that this company is going to survive. And so we went out and got the capital so we could absolutely say we'll survive. We absolutely said, eventually, we're fine. But we had to project it past anybody's predictions of safety. We did that on one side. On the other side, we said, okay, now what are the opportunities in our other main enterprise, which is well capitalized, didn't have the internet company, didn't have any of the issues of constraint, et cetera, was match and dating and home services business, which boomed during this period. So we looked for opportunities. One of the opportunities that came up fairly early that I was initially enormously skeptical about for a whole host of reasons was MGM Resorts. A lot of the times you start in these investigations of what to invest in, or at least we do, which is a process that very quickly excludes everything, basically, which is, okay, what's wrong with this picture? Mm -hmm. And pretty soon we find things that are wrong with this picture, and we go on to the next thing. As we got deeper and deeper into looking at MGM, we said, wait a minute, there's nothing wrong here. The only thing that's wrong here is the current condition of the pandemic is shut down its main arena, which is Las Vegas. And the more we looked at it, the more we scratched, the more we said, well, one, it's money good. Two, it has enormous opportunity. Because three, there's an area that we have some history and expertise in, which is the transitioning from offline to online. And we have a fundamental belief that gaming, entertainment, is going to go online worldwide. It had already begun a little, but it's definitely going to happen. It's one of the last to be colonized, so to speak. So after all that, and again on the basis of, all right, what's wrong with this picture? As it emerged, we said, not only is nothing wrong, everything's right. We therefore quietly began to purchase the security and got to 12% and announced it. We talked with the MGM board leaders and they invited us on the board. Since then, all I've learned is positive, not negative. So, you know, that's just the anatomy of that decision-making. Yeah, you, you get sort of like a double benefit because you have levers of the recovery on the core business and then opportunities for ancillary growth. I have to believe not just the online side, but one of those has to be sports betting because it seems that that is getting Sorry. legalized everywhere. Sorry, when I say online, I profoundly mean sports betting, Yeah, which MGM is already in and is going to exploit worldwide. So 
for sure. So Michigan's coming on next. Are we going to see in our uh, foreseeable future that Cuomo is going to let New York legalize sports betting? Oh, well, I think without question, he said it in a state address the other day, which is yeah. uh, he's beginning a process now. And I think there's no question that sports betting and online, not just sports betting, but online gaming is going to come to New York. In addition, will be probably the ability to have casinos in the New York area. Yeah, I think it's a huge opportunity. It's one of our central uh, thematics in the way that we're approaching the broader landscape. The other action that I think you took away from Expedia and obviously the MGM Resorts play is you brought some new investors into Vimeo and are going to talk about crystallizing security or looking at Vimeo as a separate entity, potentially, my words. Describe what Vimeo is as a platform. We've announced it. Vimeo is going to be separately spun off to our shareholders sometime in the next few months. Vimeo is a SaaS business. It's a service business. Vimeo has a million and a half or so subscribers. Vimeo allows small businesses, medium businesses, big businesses to use video, to have the tools to use it, to have the tools to not only organize it, create it, but distribute it in the most seamless and expertise manner. And it's growing. Look, it grew during the pandemic for obvious reasons, but its prospects are great. Look, ours is a very unique business model. It's totally unique because nobody else does it, which is we build, buy, create companies in order to spin them out as independent entities for their own independence and for their own growth. We've done it 11 times. We started with a market cap of 200 and some odd million dollars 25 years ago. The, this week, it's over 100 billion. This uh, is IAC. This is IAC and all of its spinoffs. Yeah. 11 spinoffs in a few months. That's unique. I mean, by the way, yeah. Somebody say, yes, it's unique and it should be and it's stupid, whatever. But so far, uh, it's been a positive model. It's created a lot of value. And so Vimeo is just the latest incarnation. Yeah. So how did you come up with this model? Because typically coming up in media, the media moguls, so to speak, are known for control. Yeah. You conglomerate. You don't anti-conglomerate. We are an anti-conglomerate. Although... We are a conglomerate. We have a lot of businesses at various stages, but when they get to be a size that we think they can be independent, successfully independent, then we spin them out. People say, I've often said, because I've been in a lot of these businesses that I, you know, like vision. I don't have no vision. I can't see around any corners. What happened is, this is many years ago, we owned a company called Ticketmaster. And one of the executives came in and said, we want to invest a lot next year, and that is going to take our income way down. Will you give us the resources to do that? And they left the room, and I was uncomfortable with it. Not that I hadn't heard of it endlessly before, but I thought, you know, there's something really wrong about that. It's like coming to daddy and saying, you know, give me money to go to the movies. And I thought, These companies, I don't believe in capital allocation of that kind coming from a central source once that entity has gotten on its legs. I thought, you know what? Instead of asking me this, you should think if I were a standalone business, and at that time, Ticketmaster was a 
you know, not a huge business, but a very going concern, billions in revenue, hundreds of millions in profit. The, the light of day should be shown right on you. And if you're going to make this investment for the next year, it's going to reduce your earnings and all of that. You ought to be able to defend it in the public market and you ought to be judged for it in the public market all by itself on its own. And that said to me, hmm, well, I can't do that inside this big conglomerate. The only way I can do it is to make it really independent. And so that was like a little bulb that went off in my head. And quickly thereafter, it wasn't Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster gave me the flashlight. It was Expedia was, I think, the first big thing we spun off. And then we spun off TripAdvisor from Expedia. And anyway, on and on and on. Yeah. Since then, I just keep getting reinforced on this concept. Well, it's the concept is consistent. You're after the truth. You're after the optimization of the truth. And if the truth is verified by the outside capital markets in an optimal way, go get it as an independent. If it has to be dependent on the IAC holding company for a while until it's seasoned, then that's fine, but that's not ready to be independent yet. So it's basically like you're kind of raising children until they're ready to be born out into the world. It's totally true. And by the way, at a certain point, keeping those children at home past their time is very unproductive and antisocial. Bad things come of that. And so I see nothing in this uh, concept of ours that does not reinforce itself every time we do it, for good and for bad. Companies we've spun out have done less well for a period that forced them to reorganize themselves and improve, et cetera. You still retain the option of bringing you back home whenever you want. I've had the pleasure, as have you, closer than me, of working with some uh, exceptional executives and founders uh, in the business, John Malone. <laughs> and I asked John about uh, the quality that best describes Barry Diller uniquely. And he said that Barry is intuitive in the way he approaches opportunities and constantly in motion meaning his brain is always working and finding new opportunities. In a way, frankly, very like respectful the way that you constantly are looking at new things. But he said he describes you as intuitive. So I, I made a list of uh, four executives that you know well, and I want to ask you if you could describe them with an adjective, starting with John Malone. How would you describe John? Oh, my God. Honestly, the only way I can describe John is deeply brilliant and with such self-confidence based on that brilliance, that he is a profound risk taker. And by the way, his thinking is contrarian, unique, et cetera, et cetera. But that's what I'd say about John. Okay. Next one. Brian Roberts. Superb executive. Being given a role by your family is chancy and odds aren't great. Brian unique relationship with a unique man, his father, was given responsibility for the company at a very young age. He has exceeded anybody's expectations that they could possibly have. He has grown every, every year in every instance. It's that growth that Brian has had that is so very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. You've told me that before that he's built an amazing company, which is true. Bob Iger. Conceptually progressive to the point of being a giant risk taker in a world where almost no one takes, quote, real risks. The only other person in 
media, real, you know, pure media, that is that level of risk taker was Rupert Murdoch. But when Bob Iger decided, and these are two decisions he made that he backed completely. One was to buy already developed big time content that started with Pixar and went on with Marvel and Lucas, et cetera. At the time that he bought Pixar, I said, you've overspent, you already own half the stuff they make. Why are you spending, I don't know, $7 billion to buy 50% of da, 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 the trailing, da, whatever. What a dumbass move that is, for which I was 100% wrong out of what he took from Pixar and built on it. But then, more importantly, buying Marvel and then Lucas and putting all those capital chips on the table on the belief that Disney had to create new content, big time content. Okay, That's a gutsy chips on the table, literally no limit, all in. Second decision, sometime later says, I got to get control of the customer because the customer is now being controlled, Netflix, et cetera, outside my realm. And I got to do something. And he then put all his big chips on the table and went for streaming. These two gigantic decisions, I mean, gigantic strategies, is the ultimate of a player who is not content with the status quo. Everybody else in the media business was, not him. Okay, last one is, and we've talked about him before, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> I don't know. Many of the ones you've mentioned, actually all of them, are my friends. Jeff is her close friend and has been for some years. You know, what to say about it? The only thing that I can do is say it wasn't hard for me to think five years ago, seven years ago, something like that, that he was going to end up being the richest person in the world, which I think he will end up being for a very long period of time, notwithstanding Mr. Musk and other high flyers. You know what you told me about him? <laughs> you told me that he constantly reinvents himself. Well, it's all been written. His thing of day one and everything is day one. And all these people, with the exception of a couple of them that you mentioned, or one of them actually, but all of these people understand risk in ways that most people forget understand it. Tolerate risk at a level that most humans would not. And Bezos is an ultimate, so to speak, example of that. At a time, this is now 20 years ago, when the internet had its big explosion in 2000, Amazon was on fumes. And he had invested huge amounts of money and Amazon was losing, obviously, a lot of money building the infrastructure, et cetera. And here's what Bezos did as against what almost anybody else would have done. Anybody else would have sold equity, which he could have done. He said, no, I'm not selling any equity. I'm borrowing all of it. And that got him very close to going under. I mean, his debt was selling or we were trying to buy it at 30 cents, 25 cents on the dollar, et cetera. He said, I won't sell equity. I'll pay back the money. And what a gutsy, I mean, you talk about a long-term gut decision. That was it. That's an example. Yeah. Okay, I have two more questions before I let you go. One about the markets and one about the media. Media first. The news. Yeah. Does the news business have to change? Is it sustainable the way it is today? Yes. 
Well, when you say news, you're now not talking, I suspect, about online news, particularly you're talking about cable and broadcast news. Or yes. I, I don't know. What do you what watch? You? How do you get your news? And are you happy with it? Well, again, I really believe, again, we've been taught a lesson about truth and lies. It's hard, hard to do. Again, opinion is fine. As much as I abhor the commentators on Fox, their opinion, I have no issue with. What I do have issue with on the Fox commentators is they should not be allowed to say things that are untrue. They can say that this election, that the rules that states had adopted for balloting, mail-in balloting, etc., they don't believe are the right rules. And in fact, those should be changed. They can say that, and they can give all the opinion they like. What they can't do is say the election was fraud. They can say in the beginning, let's examine. But when endless lawsuits are filed up to the Supreme Court, and every court says there was no fraud, they cannot say it any longer. And they have to be restrained from saying it. In other words, I'm back to this thing of red is red. That's factually true. And yet that big lie promulgated by what's his name, that big lie about that election is what caused the January 6th insurrection. We've been taught a lesson. So that has to change. How you do it, it's not that hard, but it's going to have to be done. What shall do you want? Well, I said this yesterday, actually, uh, when I was doing something. I've been watching a lot of Fox News lately. I started watching it. Well, I've been watching it a long way, just partly because I think that progressives and the left have skewed it too far that way. So I didn't want to live in my little bubble. I don't simply want to see what I want to hear. I want to get a balance to it. So I've been watching a lot of Fox News lately, and they're... General news reporting, I think, is good on a par with CNN, whose general news reporting is good, et cetera, et cetera. But while I might be sympathetic to Chris Cuomo, I put him a lot in the same category as I put that abhorrent to me, Laura Ingraham. So I think, again, these commentators, they can have their opinion, but they can't speak things that aren't true anyway. Okay. What do you think about the world of SPACs? Do you think no, it's going to be sustainable? Why no. haven't you done one? Isn't IAC a SPAC? No, it's not a SPAC. I mean, look, these are companies essentially created, they're simply capital looking to find something to invest in. And because there are so many of them, they'll find a gnome. They'll find, God knows, a toadstool to invest in simply because that capital got to go someplace. I think that's an unsound process. It'll bring companies public that shouldn't be public in the first place. I think, yeah. Look, if you had five SPACs with some capital and there were five good ideas, great. You have a thousand SPACs chasing five good ideas. That's dumb. I would not truly go near one. Yeah. Well, Barry, I could go on forever with you. Great to talk to you. Look forward to the brighter you're ahead. And uh, as you say, post-summer, hopefully post-fall, we'll go to some Broadway shows together. 
Oh, yes, for sure. Thank you, well, Ari. Love, love to be nice with the family. You too. Thanks very much. I will do it. Thanks for listening today. As always, we hope you learned something new. You can search, listen, and subscribe to all of our Kindred Media podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also hear us on Sirius XM Business Radio, Channel 132, or on United Airlines. To subscribe to our Take a Break daily newsletter, be sure to check out the link in our show notes. If you like what you heard today, feel free to share the show with a friend or leave a review at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you.